Now, why that neurologist couldn't have just waited till Monday? I wasn't anxious over the results, but of course he saw that and felt like he had to tell me immediately, but it was an excruciating weekend. Yeah. And then when I did get to speak to my oncologist the next week, which we initially had a phone conversation while waiting for the appointment, but that's when he told me that it was a chronic disease we could manage. I think he was going on a hunch that if it was the same cancer coming back, it could be managed because it had been a hormone receptor positive cancer initially. And that is typically the way a hormone receptor positive cancer presents is to go to bone first. Hi everyone, welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn more about how to navigate the healthcare system and how to take care of your health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Our guest today is Ms. Carla Manjuru. Carla is a holistic cancer coach and cancer thriver. Today she's here to share with us her cancer story and her passion for integrative medicine and health coaching. Let's get to the episode. Hi, Carla. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you very much for coming. Hi, Nikita. Thank you for having me today. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? I would be happy to. Thank you. So my name is Carla Mans Giroux, and I am a holistic cancer health coach, a cancer thriver myself, and a longevity geek. So I have a goal to live to be 100 plus. I want to make my 100th birthday healthy and sane and throw the party of the century. That sounds fun. I want to be there. <laughs> okay, you're invited. Why did you set that goal of 100? You know, I have always, I, I don't know where it originally started, but I feel like I've always had the goal to live to be 100. And I really got interested in it when the Blue Zones became popular. So the book was written by Dan Buettner and the uh, National Geographic. And when I read that book, I was just enthralled. I'm like, I want to live to be 100, but it has to be healthy and sane. So I started taking care of myself. And even just the little things like flossing your teeth every day really matter when you want to make it to live to an old age in a healthy way. And even in spite of my two cancer diagnoses, I still believe that I will make my 100th birthday and I'm determined and I'm healthy and I'm going to do it. I love that. Thanks. So you said that you are a holistic cancer coach. You also said that you are a cancer thriver. Can you define those two things and tell us a little bit about them, please? Sure. So as a holistic cancer coach, what I'm doing is helping people learn how to find healing and health in spite of a diagnosis, utilizing body, mind, and spirit practices. So to me, holistic means we're looking at the whole of you, and that includes the mind and the spirit along with the body. And I'm very passionate about that because in my own experience with cancer, I have had great success in utilizing that approach. I am a cancer thriver, not just a survivor. So I am thriving in spite of my cancer. And I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2003 and then metastatic breast cancer in 2014. And metastatic breast cancer is stage four. It's terminal. There's no cure. But my doctor, when he first told me about it, said, this is a chronic disease we can manage because my cancer is hormone fed. He knew that hormone inter intercepting drugs could really help me. 
and felt like it was a chronic disease instead of a life-threatening disease. When he said that to me, I decided I was going to manage the hell out of it. And in my corporate career, I have been a project manager and I know how to manage projects. So I am managing the hell out of my life. I really appreciate that definition and taking on your life as a project. I mm-hmm. identify. <laughs> I have a PMP too, so I, I understand the concept. You get it. But I never thought of <laughs> my life as a project quite the way you described. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about your initial cancer diagnosis? It was 2003. I was just 37 years old, so I'd never had a mammogram. And so it was a complete surprise. I had a five-year-old and a two-year-old at the time, two boys. And so it was pretty devastating to get that news, thinking that I lived a pretty healthy life. And, you know, I was fit and thin and ate healthy and thought I was doing all the right things. But I got this cancer diagnosis and I needed to manage that. I had those two young boys and I had a fairly new career that I had started just about a year prior. And so I had lots of things that, that, you know, I needed to get back to. So the diagnosis rocked my world, but I have always been a very optimistic person and just always had a positive attitude and believed in myself and my ability to do things. And so I believed that I could overcome this diagnosis and an early stage diagnosis, while it's very scary is something that that typically can be managed. And so I really just dug in and did my research. It was back in 2003, though. So there wasn't the internet so much. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, knowledge about integrative and alternative and other ways to do things. So I really just followed doctor's orders, doing the mastectomy, doing the chemo, the radiation. I did follow up with five years of tamoxifen. But I advocated for myself by doing some research, by asking the questions, by looking at things I could do to support myself. I remember actually having to go to battle just a little bit about getting acupuncture. Like my surgeon didn't want me to have acupuncture. And therefore my husband's like, no, we don't, you don't want to do anything they tell you not to do. And I'm like, but they don't know everything. They are experts. You know, she's an expert in breast surgery, not necessarily everything else. But because it was something she didn't know about, she didn't want me doing it. Now, I did end up going and getting acupuncture to help me through my chemotherapy because it really supported me through the fatigue and the nausea and kept those things at bay for me. And so it was interesting, just that little, you know, acupuncture has been around forever, but yet back in 2003, it was definitely something that got pushed back on. Did you tell her that you defied her instructions and went for the acupuncture? She was the surgeon. So once the surgery was over with, and I really didn't need to worry so much about what she said, I was working with the oncologist then at that point. And I don't remember if I actually asked permission. I just went and did it. How were your interactions with your doctors along the way? Did you feel like the news was broken to you in a way that you appreciated and stuff like that? Was everything... How did it go? Yeah, the initial news really came from my gynecologist. So I found the lump myself. I could feel it and knew something wasn't right. And again, I was 37, so I hadn't yet had a mammogram. And so I went to my gynecologist, of course, got a breast exam. They felt it too, sent me to get a mammogram. They saw something, you know, got the biopsy ordered. 
to get the biopsy, I was referred to a surgeon. And he happened to be the husband of one of the gynecologists in the practice. And she delivered one of my babies. And so I felt like, well, this is great. These people know me and and I appreciate it. My husband was with me and he was a general surgeon, but the news was broken to me in the best way that it could be. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody that hears they've got a cancer diagnosis immediately hit the fight or flight response, right? You're just, that's a threat and you kind of shut down. And I remember calling people on the way home from there, you know, friends and sister-in-laws and mother and sisters and people that knew that I was going in for this biopsy. And while my own mother and sisters were out of state, my sister-in-laws and friends were there that night for me. They came over, they were there to rally with me, to support me, to help me. And I got the support that I needed from my social network to really help me through it and make some decisions about which way to go. Because one of my sister-in-law's friends had just gone through her own breast cancer diagnosis. So she had some really good advice. I'm envisioning everyone coming to your house and and forming that circle of support. Yeah, that's exactly what it was, a circle of support. Now, I will say they brought wine as well. (laughs) And today I don't drink anymore. And I'm like, oh, well, that's one of those things I didn't know, right? The amount of sugar and the alcohol is just not good for our health and probably not the best thing to do. But then again, you get a diagnosis with like that. What is it? You want to have a drink, right? You want to just you know, relax and try to forget and try to, you know, find some way to get through it. So yeah, they really did help me get through it. You said everything was treated, you had the tamoxifen, and then several years later, you hear it's yeah. back? Yeah, 11 years later, in fact, I hit my 10-year cancerversary, and I thought I was safe because it's been 10 years and no sign of it. And unfortunately, after 11 years, it, it did show up and it showed up as metastatic breast cancer to the bones. And I found it because my left leg was numb. And I remember the summer of 2014, shaving my legs and thinking, it feels numb. That's weird. What's going on? And then feeling a little bit like that leg just wasn't going to hold me up when I was trying to do a lunge at the gym. So I went to my chiropractor. I'm like, something's up. Do I have a pinched nerve? So he worked on me to see if I had a pinched nerve because that's sure what it sounded like. After working on me for a little while, he's like, okay, if nothing's getting better, I probably should send you to an orthopedic guy and let them take a look at you. So I went to an orthopedic um, doctor and had an x-ray of my leg, my knee. They found nothing. So they sent me to a um, neurologist. And all of this took some time. So it was November before I actually went to the neurologist, even though the first symptom was in the summer and things were progressing. The numbness was increasing and the dropping of my leg was increasing. So I'd be, you know, walking and my leg would just go out from underneath me. But the neurologist did this horrible test. I can't remember exactly what it is. I think I'm sure I tried to block it from my memory, but basically took pins and needles and stuck them into my skin. Like, can you feel that? Can you feel that? Like, yes can feel that. So then he did an MRI. And when they did the MRI, they were looking at the spine. I think I had it done on a Thursday, expected to hear back from them the following week. And he called me on a Friday afternoon. And he said, with your history, we see something concerning. I had never considered that cancer might be back. It had never crossed my mind because I hit that golden 10 year cancerversary, it'll never happen to me again. And I was absolutely stunned. But when he said, given your history, we see something suspicious. I knew immediately. He's like, I've called your primary care physician. 
She's at her office waiting to hear from you. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what she's going to do for me, but great. So I called her and she said, I'm here, please come, you know, bring your husband and let's talk. So I went to her office and we talked and she let me know that what they saw on the MRI was a lot of stuff all up and down my spine. And turns out that what was going on was that the cancer was in the bone growing in such a way that it was starting to block a nerve pathway. So indeed it was pinching a nerve, but thankfully that's how I got the message and got something done about it. And it was relatively early. And so my primary care physician was lovely and wonderful and helpful. And she said, I'll do whatever I need to do to help you get you know, back to your oncologist. I think we may have even made a call that afternoon and found out that because I hadn't seen him in five years, my oncologist's office now considered me a new patient. She put a call in and she was able to get me to see him early. But this was a Friday afternoon. Yeah. The worst possible time to get this kind of news. Now, why that neurologist couldn't have just waited till Monday? I wasn't anxious over the results. But of course, he saw that and felt like he had to tell me immediately. But it was an excruciating weekend. Yeah. And then when I did get to speak to my oncologist the next week, which we initially had a phone conversation while waiting for the appointment, but that's when he told me that it was a chronic disease we could manage. I think he was going on a hunch that if it was the same cancer coming back, it could be managed because it had been a hormone receptor positive cancer initially. And that is typically the way a hormone receptor positive cancer presents is to go to bone first. That actually sounds pretty encouraging, at least the way he said, oh, well, you know, now it can be handled. Yeah. I give him a lot of credit for that. Even though I fired him later, I give him a lot of credit for having told me that because it gave me hope. It stopped me from being in a complete spiral of panic and thinking, you know, my teenage sons are losing their mother and this is the end and I'm only 47 and oh my God, you know. So he stopped that cycle of despair and fear and, and all of that. And I give him a lot of credit for that. So why did you move on then? I worked with him for a, a year and a half or two, 2014 to 2016. But because he was a conventional oncologist, every time I brought up anything about food or supplements or complementary sort of ways to support my health, he would roll his eyes at me. And I had immediately, upon getting diagnosed in late 2014, started working with Cancer Coach. And I immediately changed my lifestyle. I gave up all red meat, all sugar. So quit drinking alcohol. No, don't show up with wine for this pity party because I'm not going to do that. But I had really started to dig into what could I do to have some level of control over this and to ensure that my body was in the best possible shape to actually heal itself. But he did not buy into any of that. And so because I did those lifestyle changes, I ended up losing about 20 pounds and I didn't need to. I wasn't heavy. And so I looked rather thin and he would he kept telling me to go eat a brownie or drink a margarita. And I'm like, no, I can't. Those things are not on a diet for someone who's trying to live their best life and the healthiest life they possibly can for as long as they possibly can. So I just got tired of 
being, you know, poo-pooed away. You know, he rolled his eyes at me a number of times when I would bring up things. He'd say, go talk to the integrative department. Well, this is a large teaching hospital in Chicago. It's one of the best in the country. I have a lot of respect for them. But the integrative department is two blocks away in a different building. Therefore, it's not integrated. It's just a different department. He didn't know anything about what they knew about. And they didn't really know that much about, you know, breast cancer oncology. But they were able to help me with supplementation and with foods and things I should need. And, you know, so they gave me some advice, but it just wasn't enough. And eventually I found an integrative oncologist. And so lucky that I'm in the Chicago area because I have access to that integrative oncologist. And when I met with him, it was like, the lights came on like this guy gets me. He knows what I want to do. He's already written the book on how to beat cancer by changing your diet and changing your lifestyle and taking supplements and supporting your body to be the healthiest it can possibly be to build up the immune system so that the cancer cells can be handled the way they should be. So everybody has a little cancer, a few cells floating around, but if your immune system in your body is healthy and in shape to eliminate those cells as they pop up, then cancer can't form. So whatever the contributing factors were to mine, things got out of control and cancer developed. So the bone lesions had all been stable and, and under control since finding them. And then about a year and a half in, a liver tumor popped up. So I switched my care to the integrative oncologist and it was partially agreed upon with what the conventional oncologist had said, but he wanted to do something slightly different. I went with him, that liver tumor was fully resolved and gone within six months. And then I haven't seen cancer since. So I haven't seen any signs of the cancer since 2016. That's put me at about four and a half years with no evidence of disease. I'm very blessed, very blessed to have this because I know a lot of people don't get those kind of results. But I know that a mix of the integrative medicine or the conventional medicines that I'm taking and the integrative approach with food, diet, lifestyle, emotions, all of that has really put me in a good place. Wow, I really like that. I was going to say, can you tell us about the holistic approach that you took? But it sounds like you pretty much covered that. Was yeah. there be anything that you'd want to add to that? I would say with the holistic approach, the other things, you know, a lot of people first focus on sort of the body. So the diet, the exercise and supplementation, but there's so much more to it. So from a holistic approach, looking at the emotions, spiritual connection, you know, being able to really connect with something bigger than yourself. It's not about religion. It's about a spiritual connection. And that can be found through creativity, through art, through all sorts of different ways. A couple of the other things though, that I believe in are intuition, following your intuition, really listening to the messages your body's sending you and listening to what's the right thing for you to do. And so I worked a lot on my spiritual connection and my emotional stuff that I needed to clear up. And one of the things I worked on with the therapist was being worthy being enough. Like I had always been somebody that was seeking validation from external places and people. So I needed to be validated that I was enough by the work that I did or the way that I looked or how people responded to me. So, you know, it was a lot of good work that I did to 
realize that I am enough just the way I am. And to be able to say, I love myself and to really believe that I'm good enough was really profound work for me. Yes. Profound and valuable and important work that I yeah. think many of us struggle with. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> Is there anything else that you learned along your cancer journey? Well, one of the things that I learned with the metastatic diagnosis was how to love my cells back to health. So I never did like the fight like a girl over breast cancer or battle this or have a war against. I feel like if these are my cells, this is my body, why would I want to fight myself? So I prefer to love my naughty little cancer cells back to health. And that came out of that loving myself, right? I love myself. I love my cells. I treat myself better than I ever did before, you know, with self-care and self-compassion. And those were big things to learn because I was living a very stressful life. I had a corporate job. I traveled internationally. I worked a lot of hours. I was raising two boys and, you know, had a lot of other things going on. And so the stress was something that I think really contributed to my body not being able to actually take care of those cancer cells. But there's a lot of things that go into making up an environment that allows cancer to grow. And I have been plucking away at all of those different things that I feel may have contributed and trying to change my lifestyle. So I had an opportunity to leave the corporate world and become a holistic health coach. And I couldn't be happier. It's fulfilling work. It makes me happy. There's very little stress. I get to decide my own schedule and it has put me in a wonderful place to heal and help other people find healing too. Could you tell us a little bit more about your holistic health coaching and what that entails? Yeah. One of the things that I found with my metastatic journey was a book called Radical Remission. And this is what inspired me. It was written by Dr. Kelly Turner. And what she did was study and research people that had gone into what the medical community called the spontaneous remission. And what she found was there wasn't anything spontaneous about their remission. They were doing a lot of work. So she coined the term radical remission. But she studied over 1,500 people who'd had remissions even after conventional medicine had failed them and they were sent home on hospice or people who had tried a natural alternative approach from the start. Since her original research, she's actually now been incorporating stories of people who use an integrative approach like myself. And But what she was finding was there were 10 common factors that all of those 1,500 people were doing. And those 10 factors made up her book, Radical Remission, and the follow-up book, Radical Hope. And Dr. Turner was looking for people to be certified teachers to present the workshop and present the material and, and be coaches to help people learn these healing factors. She no longer presents the workshop herself. She's on to different things. So she did a docu-series on radical remission. Hopefully it will be back out again soon on streaming service somewhere. And she's also working on a screenplay and a TV series based on a story of a woman with a radical remission. So she went to Harvard 
for screenwriting and then went on to University of California, Berkeley for social work, oncology social work. And marrying those two things up, she kind of did the research out of Berkeley on these survivors and then wrote a story about it. And it was a screenplay. And so she's hard at work trying to get that screenplay out there in the world. And so she's got about 40 teachers around the globe who are teaching the radical remission healing factors. Some of those teachers are also health coaches like myself. I am a uh, national board certified health and wellness coach and then certified as a radical remission facilitator as well. And I love to teach people these 10 healing factors because they're such a holistic approach. It's the mind, body, spirit approach. And I've had so much success with it that I want to share it with other people so that they have success too. I love that. Thank you for highlighting that. I have a couple of partners who are also certified radical remission teachers and health coaches. And we have formed a a company called the Health Navigators. And so we present the radical remission workshop, but we also do book clubs, meditation groups, all sorts of other things. I've got lifestyle classes. I like to teach people how to do a plant-based diet, how to be non-toxic in your personal care products, how to be non-toxic in your household care products. And so I'd like to teach people how they can be healthy, how they can find a healthier way to live. And the three of us really offer a lot of great stuff. And the biggest piece is the community of like-minded people. So people that come together that also want to know this. And so probably 90% of the people that come to us have a cancer diagnosis. 5% have another diagnosis. And then 5% are probably the health seekers who'd like to prevent a diagnosis. I remember the first gentleman that came to one of my workshops who had PSA, prostate cancer levels that were getting high. He hadn't been diagnosed with prostate cancer yet, but he wanted to make sure he didn't get a diagnosis. And I applaud people like that who want to do what they can before it gets to a point where they've got to make some really difficult decisions and go through difficult treatments. How do the workshops work? The radical remission workshops are set up to cover those 10 healing factors. And so we spend right now virtually about five weeks covering the 10 different factors. So we cover two per session for five weeks And we're really digging into the research that Dr. Turner provided in the book and going in depth into that. We're talking about the studies, the the separate scientific studies that support why that factor is a healing factor. We share an inspiring survivor story. And then we have an activity, an experiential exercise that allows you to really see how you can apply this to your life. Because that's where the heart of the workshop is figuring out how am I going to implement this factor into my day-to-day life? And supporting people in doing that, we give them a game plan and we help them figure out what's my one week goal, what's my one month goal, and what's my six month goal. Because you can listen to all that great information, but if you don't come up with what can I do, it's really hard to hear all of that and then figure it out later. So we really encourage people, even those people that don't love to set goals, to pick something they can work on, some way to strengthen that factor in their life. And there's a community that gets built out of it too. You're with the same people for five weeks in a row. We've done some 10-week workshops as well for people that want to do it one hour at a time instead of two. And for people that are in treatment, one hour can be 
as much as they can handle. Two hours on a Zoom call can get to be a lot for an able-bodied person, but somebody that's going through treatment and is tired and not feeling well, it's even more difficult. So we present the workshop really in that format to help people figure out how can they apply it? How can they bring this into their day-to-day? Do you teach anything about patient advocacy? Have you ever had to advocate for yourself or one of your clients? Absolutely. I have advocated for myself from the beginning. And one of the factors is empowerment. Originally in the book, Dr. Turner called it taking control of your health, but she realized you can't really control everything. So she changed it to be more about empowerment, but it's essentially about being the CEO of your health. You need to be your own best advocate. Nobody knows you better than you do. So you need to treat doctors like the experts they are. You seek them out for their expertise and guidance, but you're the one that makes the decisions. So doing your own research, we call it being the naughty patient instead of being the good patient. So a doctor might consider the good patient the one that just nods their head and follows orders and does whatever a doctor says. The naughty patients are those that go do their research, that are reading books, that are talking to other people, that are learning everything they can, that are coming back and questioning their doctor. They're bringing them studies from PubMed. So PubMed.gov is a great place to go and look up you know, the latest research. It's like Google for clinical trials and research and things that doctors are doing. So your doctor is going to absolutely pay attention to what his peers are publishing in PubMed. And that's where you can get a deeper, more, just a a better conversation with your doctor about what the alternatives are, what the choices are. You know, there's always more than one way to approach treatment. There's typically more than one drug. There's many drugs. There's other ways to support your health. And so by being able to bring studies to your doctor and then have that conversation with them, you're in charge and you're letting them know that you want to use them as the expert for guidance, but that ultimately you're going to be the one making the decisions about your health. And there are studies that prove that people that do take control, that are empowered around their health, have better outcomes than those that just nod and follow doctor's orders. Do you have any myths and misconceptions that you think need to be dispelled around cancer or health coaching? There are definitely misconceptions around cancer. The biggest misconception is that chemotherapy is the only way. And I'm not advocating for people not to do chemotherapy because there are times when it's absolutely necessary and appropriate I did chemotherapy with my early stage diagnosis. I may not have if I knew what then what I know now and what I've learned, but even if I had done it, I would have certainly changed some other habits and some lifestyle things because I finished up all that treatment, that chemotherapy and radiation and and did the five years of tamoxifen, but I never changed anything else. And what you need to know is that you've got to change the environment in which the cancer grows if you don't want it to keep growing. So while the chemotherapy, radiation, and tamoxifen may have slowed it way down, so it didn't show up for 11 years, if at that time I had changed my diet and looked at herbs and supplements to support me and done the emotional work that I needed to do and addressed the stress in my life, et cetera, et cetera, maybe the cancer would not have continued to grow. But I didn't do all those things. Now, I'm not second-guessing it now, 
just saying if you know we can always go if i knew what now what i knew then but the misconception that chemotherapy is the only way is i think a big thing and the misconception that conventional treatment alone is what gets rid of cancer is a mistake you definitely need to be looking at what else can you do what do you have the power to change in your life to ensure you're changing that environment? And conventional doctors don't know about diet, herbs and supplements, that kind of stuff. So they don't really recommend it. And in fact, sometimes they tell you not to do it, which I think is wrong. Just because they don't know about it doesn't mean it can't be helpful. I would love to see conventional doctors learn more about diet and herbs and supplements and exercise and emotion, the whole mind-body connection. There's such a huge body of research that proves there is a mind-body connection. So what you believe is what's going to appear in your body. If you believe this chemotherapy is going to help you, it's probably going to help you. If you believe that it's going to be toxic and it's going to harm you, it's going to harm you. You know, it's things like that people need to be thinking about and, and deciding what's right for them based on what they believe and potentially working on their mindset to change their misconceptions about how to approach their healing. And that was nicely said. And listening to you, the definition of integrative really came out because it sounds like integrative is conventional plus. It's like conventional plus lifestyle change, conventional plus behavior change. My integrative oncologist absolutely does standard of care. So he will deliver chemotherapy and the meds and everything else, but he has some special tricks. So he has chronomodulated chemotherapy, which is delivered at the exact right time, timed with your circadian rhythms. He gives you the diet he wants you to follow and the exercise he wants you to do and the lifestyle changes he wants you to make, because he knows that if your body is as strong as possible, you are going to get through that chemotherapy easier. You're not going to have the same side effects as somebody that's continuing to eat the poor diet and live the poor lifestyle. What time is ideal? I imagine it will differ depending on the person. It does. It differs depending on the person. I did not have chronomodulated chemotherapy myself because I went through my chemotherapy back in 2003 before I found Dr. Block, but he has found that timing chemotherapy to your circadian rhythm has a better overall outcome. So less side effects, it's less harsh for the body, and it's more effective. There's another doctor in Seattle that does something similar, but not exactly the same. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, integrative oncologists are just not that common in the United States. It's hard to find them. There's only a few around the country. And so for your metastatic diagnosis, there was no chemo, it was just all the lifestyle stuff. And aromatase inhibitors, so hormone blocking drugs. So I do go in and monthly for treatment. I take a pill for 21 days. I'm off for seven days. And then I go back in and they check my blood to say whether I can start it or not because it depletes my white blood cell count. And they also give me an injection of a second aromatase inhibitor. So basically blocking the hormones from feeding the cancer. Any misconceptions about health coaching? I think maybe not so much misconceptions is just not a lot of knowledge about what a health coach can do and how they can help. And I like to tell people that your doctor will tell you what you need to do and, and why, but not how, and not how to apply it and how to make those changes. And change is hard for people. I recently read an article, but I reread it and it was change or die. 
back from back in May 2015. And this article, while it was a little bit about business, they were using the health model as a basis for their ideas that, you know, people have a really hard time changing. And my corporate career was around change management. So this is the kind of stuff that I get really interested in. And I know people have a hard time making lifestyle changes. Even if you're doctor, like Dr. Dean Ornish, big on lifestyle changes around heart conditions, right? So people that were having heart attacks and, and heart issues, he found that if he told people what they needed to do and put them through a program, if they had a peer support group to go through, they were much more likely to adhere to the changes. If you just tell them what they need to do and send them on their own, they're not going to make those changes or they may do them for a while. But 90% of the people within a year stop doing the lifestyle changes even when their life depended on it. And that's just crazy. Only 10% of the people can make changes stick when they know they need to. So the key factor is really having an emotional tie-in to it. So that fear of death apparently is too far out there or too abstract for people to really be afraid of for the long haul. But when you have an emotion tied to it, so in Dr. Dean Ornish's case, he would say men with heart attacks can no longer take a walk or play golf or make love to their wives. There's the emotional piece, right? I still want to play golf and make love to my wife. So that emotional tie-in is what got them to make their lifestyle changes and keep the lifestyle changes. So people with cancer need to find their emotional tie-in. The fear of death isn't enough. One of the other healing factors is having strong reasons for living. And we help people in the workshop learn what is their strong reason for living. Why do you want to get up every day and be here? Maybe it's to see your children grow up, but even if you don't have kids or your children are grown or gone, it can be other things that you have a goal to do something like live to be a hundred, or you have a goal to travel to every continent or whatever it is. And it can be small stuff. Strong reasons for living isn't necessarily about big, grandiose goals that you have. It's not about winning the Nobel Peace Prize or finding the cure for cancer. But having that strong reason and that emotional tie-in is what's going to get you to make the changes and keep the changes for a long time. Accountability. Does that help? Definitely. So accountability is something that you really have to have for yourself. You have to be accountable. But in those groups, when you have support, when you have people also working on the same things, and this is what we see in our health navigator classes and book clubs and groups, and the community comes together and supports each other. And when somebody needs to report back in the next week on how they're doing on that lifestyle goal that they set, they're more likely to keep the goal because they know they need to report back on it. And so accountability does become a big thing with coaching and, and in-group. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I like that finding your strong reason to live was one and death is too far away. You've got to find something closer. Very fascinating. Is there anything else that you learned that you wish you had known before or would change you know, your approach had you known? Yes, I wish I had known that the 
healthy diet I thought I ate because I ate vegetables and salads was not really a healthy diet. So we have the standard American diet and the acronym for that is SAD, which is SAD, right? The standard American diet is SAD. And I like to tell people that just because it's in the grocery store does not mean it's okay to eat. There are a lot of things that are in the grocery store just because somebody can make money off of it. And our processed food obsession is not the way to go. The standard American diet, even though I thought I'm eating lots of salads and lots of veggies, I was still eating meat and sugar and processed foods. And those are the things that really have an impact on our foundational health. So we also tell people don't bother with herbs and supplements if you're eating a really crappy diet, because the the really strong, healthy diet needs to be there first for the herbs and supplements to then be the next piece that's going to help you. And diet in the United States is, I know it's such an emotional thing. People are all wrapped up in their food and and there's emotions wrapped up and traditions wrapped up in it and family thing wrapped up in it and you know comfort food and all of that. And it can be so hard. But just by starting to add more vegetables to one's diet, you have a much better chance of being healthy and maintaining your health. And the things that we live with today, thinking that it's just normal to grow old and feel a little achy or, you know, not even to be that old, but to be overweight and obese and to have achy joints and, you know, all of that stuff. That's not, that's not how it should be. And you don't have to give up all meat and you don't have to give up all sugar. What the radical remission survivors found was they needed to to drastically reduce or eliminate. And then you buy higher quality types of meat and things like that. But I really learned a lot about nutrition going through this for myself and, and really learned that even though I thought I was healthy, I wasn't. And the other thing I learned that I would love women with breast cancer to know is that 30% of the women with early stage breast cancer will have a second metastatic cancer. Maybe not a second cancer. I shouldn't say it that way because metastatic cancer is the same cancer returned. And that's a big number. And while 70% don't, that's great. But do you want to take that chance? Mm -hmm. So if you've had an early stage diagnosis, I encourage you to really look at your diet and your lifestyle and see what you can do to change that so that you really can overcome any further occurrences. The changes that you've made in your diet, did your family go along on your journey with you? Yeah, not so much. So my husband and two sons, so at the time that I got the metastatic diagnosis, it was really too late for my sons. They were old enough, set in their ways, like, you know, teenagers, high school age, and they were going to have none of it. And I tried and I continue to try, but I'll tell you what, those boys know the difference between grass-fed beef and just regular beef because grass-fed beef doesn't have as much fat in it. And even though it's a better meat, it's a healthier meat. And it's just that they are so conditioned with the meat that has the fat in it and all the, all the stuff. So I can't even pass off those kinds of things. Now they will try some things that I do. I've got them eating Mediterranean with me. They're happy with falafel and with chickpea burgers and things like that, you know? And so there are some meals that I can make that, that they will eat, but It was definitely a struggle because I did feel like, especially with my husband, I put it more on him than the kids. Like he wasn't supporting me. Like if you were really supporting me, you'd be doing this with me. And while he will eat anything I make, 
he's not living that lifestyle. So if he's having lunch out or, you know, dinner out with somebody, he's not necessarily eating in that healthy way that I eat. So how do you navigate that? Like Thanksgiving or the bigger holidays when, you know, people are going to have a bunch of things that you might not. Right. And I, it was hard in the beginning. It was really hard. And I was diagnosed in, in November. And so then there was the holidays, right? The December, you know, all the holiday parties and things. And I remember going to a party at a neighbor's house and everything had cheese on it. And the dining room table was covered with sweets, all kinds of candies, cookies, cakes, pies, whatever. And there was essentially nothing there I could eat. I was no longer drinking alcohol. So I had my glass of water. I felt so boring and so bored. Like I was used to being the life of the party and I'm an extrovert and I'm talking to people. And I was just like, I don't know who this woman is, but I don't like her. I'm going to take her home and put her to bed. So I left the party early and left my husband there. And it took a few months, but I worked out how to be interesting and not boring and fun in spite of the fact that I wasn't eating all that crap and I wasn't doing alcohol anymore. And I've come to terms with it. I learned how to make things that I can eat that other people can enjoy too. So I always take something with me to a party now, at least when we used to be able to go to people's houses. And so I make something that I know I can eat and that other people will enjoy as well. And for the holidays with family, I have this lovely butternut squash stuffed recipe that I do. And it's wild rice and vegetables and in a butternut squash. And it's just, it's beautiful and it's tasty and everybody else loves it too. And I just skip the meat portion. And I will allow myself to have a little bit of my sister-in-law's pie because she's the best baker in the world. And if you have an indulgence occasionally, it's going to keep you from just falling off and saying, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to eat everything. So enjoy something on your birthday or at the holidays. Just don't go overboard. Have you planned your party, your 100th birthday party? Do you have an idea of what you want it to look like? I do, because you know what? I was diagnosed at 47 with metastatic, and then I threw myself a 50th halfway there birthday party. So I had a big birthday party. You would have thought somebody was having a wedding. I had the photo booth there. I had the music and the dance floor. We had food that was Carla approved food. There was alcohol there for people that wanted that, but there was plenty of non-alcoholic fun beverages too. And it was just the most fun. And it was my halfway there birthday party. And I had 300 of my closest friends there. And I I imagine my my 100th birthday, there'll be even more people because I collect people as I go. And I plan to continue to make friends young and old, because when I'm 100, I know a lot of other people my current age are not going to still be with us. And so I'll have young friends who will still be able to come to my party and help me celebrate. I live in the Chicago area, so I'm either moving before then or having a destination birthday because my birthday is in December. And it's just too cold in, in Illinois in, in December. So it is going to be the party of the century. I plan on dancing because I love to dance. I plan on having a lot of fun and just bringing together a lot of wonderful people. Yeah. And you speak with such vivid imagery. that I, I've envisioned everything. I can see the party. <laughs> I can see the 50th. I can see the people. Sounds really exciting. Any closing thoughts? Well, I would just like to share that if people are interested in learning more about what I and my partners do through the Health Navigators, they can find us at healthnavs.com. They can reach out to me at 
Carla at KMG Coach, and it's Carla with a K. And I am always happy to talk to people about their journey and help them through it without, right? It can it just do a free conversation. I, you know, I never charge anybody for an initial conversation. If you decide you want to do some coaching with me, then that's great. I'd be honored to help you through your journey. But I believe in sharing what I know and helping people find the resources that they need. And I have so many resources from what I have found and what other people have shared with me. There are so many places that you can go to learn more about integrative health and and how to get through a cancer journey or some other diagnosis in a more holistic way. And I just love sharing that with people. Thank you, Carla, for coming to the Good Health Cafe. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Nikita. It was a pleasure for me as well. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Tell me, have you been inspired to start planning your 100th birthday party? If you want to get in touch with Carla, all her information is in the show notes. A few quick announcements. On June 17th at 3 p.m., I'm going to be hosting a webinar on the key elements of patient-provider relationships. This webinar is completely free. If you work anywhere in the provision of healthcare, I encourage you to sign up for this free webinar to learn more about this important topic. Second, don't forget to check out the Good Health Candle Company if you're interested in scented soy candles free of parabens and harmful phthalates. You can learn more at goodhealthcandle.com. And finally, let me know what you think about the podcast. Are you enjoying it? Are there things that you want to hear more of or less of? Do you have a favorite episode? Please fill out the contact us form on thegoodhealthcafe.com to let me know what you think. I love hearing from you and I reply to every message I receive. All the information I have referenced can be found in the show notes. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.